Well, I'm super grateful to be with you guys today. We're, we're going to be in Colossians 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, and so this is actually one of the um, messages, one of the studies we went through in Cam and I's backyard a few weeks ago when we were meeting um, as a small group. And we had the opportunity then, I think, a, a unique opportunity to um, experience biblical worship and experience that word of God in much the same way as the Colossians did originally. Um, we were small groups of believers spread out across the city um, in what is what was then and what is now an incredibly um, unstable, unpredictable, unsettling time. Um, we were pouring over a letter written by a man that we'd never met. And so the location has now changed. Praise God. We're, we're together again, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but the, the message inside the letter to the Colossians, it's, it's just as soul-stirring and inspired and comforting today and here as it was in our backyard and as it was um, when it arrived in Colossae. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the part of the text that we're going to be going through, and I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us, and we'll begin. Um, so starting in Colossians 1, in verse 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, I thank You for the privilege it is to worship You through Your Word this morning. God, I pray that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to understand and to grasp the truths in this word, that we would believe them, that you would convict us according to your word of our, of our sin, of our need for you, of the glory of Christ. God, and I pray that we would behold that more than anything in your word today. The, the beauty and the worthiness, the comfort and the hope of Christ. That we wouldn't just see it and understand it, but that it would satisfy our souls, that it would be precious to us, God, and that we would be changed. That we would be convicted and convinced of its application to our lives today and now. Father, I pray that you would work within me if it be your will. God, be with my mind and my mouth. Protect me from error. God, may your strength be made perfect in my weakness. May your Holy Spirit deliver your word without hindrance from me. 
God, and may you be glorified at, at the reading and worship of your word or in your word. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. All right. So my thesis for this morning, basically a summary statement of the text, as we'll hopefully see, is this, that the hope of Christ is the firm, fruitful foundation for a life that is fully pleasing to God. Or the hope of Christ is the firm, fruitful foundation for a fully pleasing life. So you'll, if you'll forgive me the alliteration. That's how my mind works. I'm able to walk through the text like that. And I, I realize we'll have a lot of words in there to define in that statement. And so we're going we're gonna to let the text do that for us. And I'm going to start. I'm not going to spend much time on the introduction to this letter. But I'm going to start through the first five verses. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And this is where we'll really start looking at it today. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So after a brief introduction, Paul essentially begins this letter to the Colossians with a prayer, really a two part prayer. But this first part, he's thanking God for the faith and love of the Colossians. So there's there's already something that might strike us as we walk through these first few verses. And, that, and that's Paul being a prisoner um, hundreds of miles away is convinced that these people he has yet to meet possess faith in Christ. Right? He's, he's already thanking God for this faith in Christ that they possess and their love for all the saints. And we, when we say faith in Christ, what we mean is faith in the person and work of Christ. Right? The life, death, burial, resurrection, atonement, um, justifying righteousness all from Christ. Right? And so what he's thanking God for is that they're saved. Paul, who has not been mobile at this point, he's in prison hundreds of miles away. He's never met them. It's likely that he hasn't corresponded with them before. He is convinced that they're saved. He's convinced that the faith that they profess in Christ is actually a faith that they possess. It's genuine. And he's heard of their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. So, so we might ask, first off this morning, how is Paul sure how has Paul heard of what is by nature an inward or, ex, or internal characteristic of someone? This internal trust that we place in Christ. And we see in the next phrase, in the same sentence, that he's also heard of their love for all the saints. And so I don't think it's an, a stretch here to say that Paul is convinced of their salvation, convinced of their faith in Christ because of their love for all the saints. Because their faith is demonstrated in their love for all the saints. So we, we've seen faith here. It's this justifying trust in the work of Christ. But then we also see here love for all the saints. And when we hear love today, we often think of this internal disposition, right? So just this faith is internal, right? It's a trust in Christ. It's an inward position of your heart. We think of love in the same way. That it's really just an affection for the people around us. That it's a positive disposition toward those people. But if Paul, being hundreds of miles away, has, has heard of this love, um, I don't think it would be merely just an inward disposition. We see how Paul writes of love elsewhere in his writings to the church. He speaks of love as the fulfillment of the law in Romans 14. That it is loving your neighbor as yourself. 
that it's comprised by your actions. It's how you treat the other saints. And so their love for all the saints is proven, confirmed, and is the way that they treat the other saints. That they put the other saints' needs before their own. That they, that they refuse to harm or bear false witness against their neighbor, against the saints. That they seek to serve them in all things. That they don't consider themselves um, more highly than they ought. But they consider other people as more important. And so the love of the saints, the love that proves genuine faith, it's, it's all there evidenced in how we treat those around us. And even specifically how we treat those in our church. So Paul is convinced of this true faith that they have because of their love, because of their treatment of the other saints. We see also here that they didn't have to tell anyone about their love. Um, and I'm not trying to pick on any congregation here, but I've, I've been in congregations, and I think it is the temptation of many congregations to trumpet how much they love each other. Right? That they have to make that known. They, they essentially boast in how, how much they care for their own. But Paul is, is here, and he's never met them. He hasn't corresponded with them. And the Colossians didn't have to write to Paul and say, Paul, we love the saints. We love the other saints. They didn't have to write to Paul and say, Paul, we believed in Christ. We have true faith in Christ. It was evident to Paul. And really we see here that it's evident through all the empire. It was evident in the way they treated the other saints. And it goes to show that if you love someone like Christ loves you, if you love someone like Christ has commanded you to in his law, you won't have to tell anyone that you love them. You won't have to tell anyone that you love someone else. It won't be kept quiet. You think if someone's being loved like that, with a Christ-like love, do you think they're going to not tell someone about it? They aren't going to testify to your love? And we see later on that it's actually Epaphras who's testified about their love for the saints. It proved their faith. It not only their actions proved that their love was genuine. It wasn't merely an inward disposition, but it proved that they had faith in Christ. So first, first off, we see this relationship between faith and love, right? True faith in Christ is proven, demonstrated by their love for the saints, by the way they treat those that worship with them, by the way they treat those around them. But there's a third concept here, um, really in the same sentence from Paul, and it's hope. We see here that it's they've heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. So true faith produces love, but both faith and love are because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. We see this kind of triad of Christian concepts, if you will, all the way through Paul's writings, faith, hope and love. They characterize Paul's writings to the church. And we may think maybe one of the more famous verses that we see faith, hope, and love together is the end of 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter. Faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. So love is the, the pinnacle of the relationship, but all three are related. And the relationship between hope and faith and love is, is causal as it's presented here, right? It's it comes about because of hope. So if we think of the relationship here today as we walk through this text, if love is the fruit, right, it's, it's the fruit of faith, and faith is the root, having the matter in you, then, then hope is the soil in which it all grows. 
right? It's foundational to our faith. And therefore, by the relationship between faith and love, the hope of Christ is foundational to our love as well. So we know that our faith is what is in Christ. It's the trust in the work of Christ that justifies us before God. We see that in Romans 4 um, and Hebrews 11. Um, We know that this love that we have for the saints, it's external actions in the real world, and it justifies our faith, as James puts it in chapter 2 of his letter. But what is this hope that Paul speaks of? And so, this is the third word we're going to have to define today. What, what is hope? What is the Christian hope? And so, I want to draw a distinction between the way Paul uses hope and the way we generally tend to use hope today. Because usually when we say hope, what we mean is we wish. Right? We, we say things like, I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope my wife makes this for dinner. I hope this um, lockdown ends soon. Right? It's something that we really don't have any reason to expect. It's vague. It's ambiguous. But we wish it would happen. Essentially, it's wishful thinking. But that's not how Paul uses the word hope in his writings. That's not how any of the biblical authors use hope in the scriptures. It's not abstract or vague. The word used here for hope is elpis. It's this object noun which implies something tangible. It's not, it's, it's something real. It's something maybe not yet seen, but it's expected. They have reason to expect it to come. It's concrete. We also see that this hope, aside from being not ethereal, but concrete and real, um, we see that it is laid up for them in heaven. So this hope is something that is somewhere, right? It's in a location. It's concrete. We see how Paul defines hope or how he qualifies hope later at the end of Colossians 1 in verse 27, where he says, To them God chose to make known how great among Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it's not only laid up for us in heaven, it's something that's somewhere, but it's a hope of glory, the expectation of glory. Paul elsewhere defines hope this way in Romans 8, starting in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So this hope is the hope of glory. It's the hope of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's the hope of our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. Our hope is that we will one day be perfected and presented to Christ. 
Right. Our hope is that God will dwell with us forever. Our hope is that one day we will be raised as Christ was raised, incorruptible, with a body that loves to serve and praise Jesus just as much as our renewed minds and spirits do. This is the Christian hope. And it's an expectation. It's real. Just as those new bodies will be real, this hope is real. And and what enables them to wait, yes, with eager longing, but also with patience, is the fact that it's sure. It's promised by God. So our hope, the, the Colossians' hope here, and the Romans' hope, is a real certain expectation of union with Christ. That one day there will be no sickness, no death, no pain, no sin. And it's in this hope we were saved. It's in this hope that we are saved. It's for this hope that we're saved. And so our hope is in a something that is somewhere. Our glorification with Christ. And it's in someone, the person of Jesus Christ. And it's firm. It's genuine. It's expected. We also see see here that this hope is true. The back half of verse 5 in Colossians 1, it says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So they've heard of this hope in the word of the truth, the gospel, because it's true, because it testifies to something. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the goal of the gospel. That our hope in Christ, our our full resurrection, redemption in Christ, our full adoption in Christ is the goal of the salvation that comes through the gospel. It's eternal life with Christ Jesus, the, the satisfaction and joy of our souls. It's, it's this reason, not only that we're saved, but it's for this reason that we were made and that we exist. So the Christian hope is not an uncertain hope. It's not hanging by a thread or resting on a wing in a prayer. It's this firm and true and solid expectation of resurrection and life with Christ. So for the Christian today, I would just tell you, we don't do blind faith in the negative sense. We may not see it, but our faith and our hope are grounded in past, present and future realities. Right. Our hope is based on something that happened on this earth, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Paul puts it, because he has been raised, we also will be raised. Right. Our hope is not only grounded in past realities, but it's grounded in in present realities that right now we're being renewed day by day in the Holy Spirit, that right now he still works in us to do his will and his good pleasure. That he who is faithful to begin that work in us will be faithful to complete it. And that is the future reality that we will one day stand before Christ, raised incorruptible, with no, with no shred of sin left. No shred of idolatry left. And we will be united fully with Christ. We died with Christ to sin and death. And because Christ was raised, we will be raised with him. It's in this hope. That we're saved. So we see in, in the first few verses of Colossians 1 that hope is, or that the hope of Christ is, the firm foundation of the Christian faith. That yes, love is the pinnacle of everything that we're called to do and to be. That faith is what produces that, justifying faith in Christ that makes us righteous before God. 
But there has to be an object of faith. Right? There has to be something for faith to rest on. We see exhortations in the world when bad things happen and we're, we're waiting for something to improve. And I've heard this so many times. People say, just have faith. But there's no specification of, of what? Faith in what? Faith of what? Hope in what? Hope of what? And this is something that the Christian worldview, that the gospel can offer, that no other philosophy can, that no other message can. It is faith in Christ and faith in the hope of Christ. Hebrews 11 defines faith as the substance of things hoped for and the certainty of what we do not see. So hope is the expectation of the inheritance of Christ. Faith is the confident belief in what was hoped for. As Romans 4 defines the faith of Abraham, it says that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And love is the radical expression of people that have been changed by genuine faith. This is what Paul is thanking God for when he thanks, when he thanks God for the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. So the hope of Christ is foundational and it's firm. And now we see here in verse 6 that the hope of Christ is fruitful. Starting back in the back half of verse 5, it says that this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the word of the truth, the gospel, which proclaims the hope of Christ, which makes known to us what we can expect in Christ it came and it bore fruit, not only in the Colossians, not only for the Colossians, but it's bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. That the gospel, when it's proclaimed faithfully, when it's heard and when it's understood in truth, it brings in a harvest of God's people. And it brings in a harvest in each of God's people. That as God's people become convinced of the hope of Christ and they put their trust in Christ, they live out their faith and love to other saints. The gospel was not meant only for the Colossians, we see here. And nor is it meant just for us. But it's intended for the whole world and it is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. And we know that everywhere the gospel goes, it bears fruit and increases. Every tribe, every tongue, Every nation, every culture God redeems for himself, sanctifies for himself, sets apart for himself a people. The gospel seeds sown by our king burst out of the ground and themselves bear fruit. And they reproduce, increasing the harvest. Everywhere the gospel goes, people come to faith in Christ. Everywhere the gospel goes, it works. Everywhere. Maybe not in all people, but in some people. This we know by the good promises of our sovereign King. The hope of Christ in the gospel does not only work once in the Christian either, but it continues to transform the lives and minds and hearts of Christians and to drive them to gospel labor themselves. That it not only bears fruit in each of those seeds that was sown, but those, those gospel plants that rise up, those faithful saints, they reproduce themselves. 
And such is the case with Epaphras. It says here in verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So at some point, Epaphras, who actually started out in the church in Ephesus, he comes to Christ through the preaching of Paul. And he was so constrained, so driven by the hope of Christ that he had received, that he goes to the city of Colossae and he plants this church. That he couldn't keep this hope of Christ to himself, but he had to share it. He had to make it known. He was convinced that it would go forth to all the nations. And he faithfully plants this church. Paul calls him a faithful minister of Christ, a beloved fellow servant on the Colossians' behalf, on their behalf. He's lovingly laboring to make known the hope of Christ in Colossae. And he's made known to Paul, now occasioning this letter, that, Paul, that, that the gospel had borne fruit in the people in Colossae. And so, I would say for us, at some point in our lives, at some point in your life, if you are in Christ, you had someone just like Epaphras faithfully minister to you the gospel. Faithfully share to you the gospel. They were so driven by the hope that they knew. So convinced that it was not only their only hope, but your only hope. That they brought it to you. And they faithfully shared it to you. And it probably wasn't a one-time event either. They probably didn't come to you and share the gospel one time. And you immediately repented of your sin and embraced it. Chances are you might have rejected them, ridiculed them, blown them off. But if they were anything like Epaphras, they were faithful in their gospel ministry. I don't think for one moment that Epaphras' gospel ministry in Colossae was easy. That it was instantaneous. The word faithful here implies a perseverance over time. And that's exactly what Epaphras did in Colossae. And that's exactly what your Epaphras did for you could have been a parent, a friend, or a teacher, a neighbor, but someone loved you enough to minister faithfully to you with the gospel, with the hope of Christ. So I would say think back and thank God for that Epaphras, but I must ask also, are you in Epaphras? Can you truly say that you are a faithful minister of Christ on someone's behalf? Are you so convinced of the hope of Christ that you believe it is someone else's only hope? And do you love that person that you're convinced has only hope in Christ and does not, ne- does not yet know Christ? Do you love that person enough to minister faithfully to them at the expense of your relationship, at the expense of your esteem in their eyes? Are you an Epaphras to someone else? Because the hope of Christ by nature is a hope that must be shared and declared. It's not something that we hoard or stockpile for ourselves like weapons or food or toilet paper, right? It's something that we we share with other people. We don't receive the hope of Christ and say, I'm good. I've got the hope of Christ. I'm set. Everything's all right. I'm going to hunker down now and wait for glory. The whole world can go to hell, but I'm good. That's not the Christian hope. The nature of the hope of Christ is that it must increase, that it's fruitful. It's not only foundational, it's not only firm, but it's fruitful and it can, will and must increase. It's bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. And so we also see implied here about the nature of the hope of Christ 
not only that it's fruitful, but that the hope of Christ is the only hope. That there's only hope in Christ. The hope of Christ allows for no substitutes or supplements. And in Christ, the Christ in whom we hope, He tolerates no rivals. It's hope in Christ or no hope at all. That's what drives faithful gospel ministry. That's why Epaphras carried this hope to the Colossians. That's why the gospel is bearing bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. And that's why it must go to the whole world. Because it is the world's only hope. And so there's a, I want to introduce something to you if you haven't heard of it before. There's this common saying or maxim that I've heard many times in my life growing up. Um, and I got in trouble for throwing the person that said this to me under the bus last time I preached it. So I'm going to keep their name out of it. But there's this, there's this common saying that I've heard so much. And you may have heard it this way too, but it goes like this. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That, that sounds pretty good, right? It's one of those good, old-fashioned, down-home, southern sayings. And honestly, I hate that statement maybe more than anything else I've ever heard. I think I hate that statement more than anything else I've heard Joel Osteen say. I, I, I wish today to kill that statement, to blot it out from your mind, to refute it and to burn it. And the reason why is because when I look at the world today, when I look at the church today, I don't think that's the problem. I don't look at the churches in America and say, wow, they are way too heavenly minded. I don't look at my life. I don't look at my struggle with sin and think, wow, you know, this would really improve if I was just a little bit less focused on Christ. I don't even look at our congregation what I would consider a healthy church and say, wow, I just wish Sovereign Grace thought a little bit less about Jesus. That's not a problem that we encounter. And in fact, I think this saying contains this satanic presupposition that that can even be a possibility for a human being. Or that being heavenly minded somehow hinders a person from being good or from doing good on the earth. If being too heavenly minded was something that Christians were in danger of, I think you would find an admonition against it in Scripture, but you will find no such warning in the Bible. Instead, we actually find the opposite. Turn with me to the beginning of Colossians 3, where Paul says in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's the Christian hope, and that's the Christian exhortation. It's the opposite of a warning against being too heavenly minded. It is that we would take our eyes off of the things of the earth and set them on the things above where Christ is seated. That we would set our minds on the things above. It is essentially a command from Paul that we would have a heavenly mindset. A heavenly mindset based on the hope of Christ. And what what comes about from this heavenly mindset? We see in verse 5 here in chapter 3. 
Put to death, therefore, this inference from what just came before, this exhortation to set our minds on the things above. What happens? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. A heavenly mindset based on the hope of Christ is the death of sin in the Christian. It puts to death the sin in the Christian. And so I can confidently say, contrary to that old adage, that being heavenly minded is the only way to be of any earthly good. And so some of you may not have heard that that saying, you know, in those words verbatim before. But isn't that essentially what we're told every day? What we're warned of every day? See, we watch the news or we scroll through social media and we were bombarded with the brokenness and hatred and division in the world. With rampant wickedness and injustice and hopelessness. And there's never been a time when the hope of Christ in the gospel has been more needed. But yet there's also never been a time when the hope of Christ in the gospel has been more neglected by those who profess to follow and believe in Christ, who profess to have that hope. See, much of the visible church has bought into this narrative, this false idea that faithful gospel ministry is, is insufficient for the times and the controversies today. And that the timing of God's justice is too slow. That His method of establishing peace is too weak. We can pray, we can preach, but at some point we have to act. At some point we've got to try something new. They say as if prayer were merely wishful thinking and gospel preaching was not acting and not commanded by our Father. And in our own power and self-reliance, we try to address the superficial problems of the world while ignoring the roots of the problem that is the total depravity of the human heart devoid of Christ. We pay lip service to the importance of the gospel while the proclamation of the hope of Christ is replaced with virtue signaling or worldly philosophies and countless calls for new laws. Now, let me tell you something. I heard a great I heard a great illustration of this the other day. Laws are like stoplights. Right. They can warn you and they they may restrain you somewhat mentally, but they can't stop a car. Right. At some point, the driver has to choose whether they're going to follow that law or not. And so stoplights are good. I'm not saying we shouldn't have them. They should be in reasonable areas, but they can't restrain a car. And neither can any amount of laws restrain the evil that is in the human heart. We need something more. We need something different. We need something godly and heavenly. See, when Epaphras went to Colossians, he didn't carry a message of social reconstruction to the city of Colossae or a message of privilege and oppression or behavior modification or political strategy. He brought the message of Christ and him crucified, 
Christ raised from the dead. The, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because He knew that that hope, the hope of Christ, was firm, it was foundational, and it resulted in faith and in love for those around them. It was this message, the hope of Christ, that shone the light of Christ into the darkness of the human heart. It's this message that reconciled enemies, that changed cultures, that produced love for others, and established a peace in people that's untouchable by external circumstances. Everywhere the gospel goes, it produces faith in Christ. Everywhere faith in Christ resides, the love of Christ lives. Everywhere the love of Christ proliferates, cultures change. People change. Simply put, the gospel works. The gospel works. It may not work in the timing that we want it to. It may not work on the scale that we feel it should But in God's sovereign plan and in God's sovereign providence, the gospel works. It accomplishes things that no other message can accomplish. It it does and it can, it will do things that no other message can hope to do. Every corner of our culture right now is, is demanding and screaming for love. Right? Even if they have no idea what love is. Even if their idea of love is really contrary to God's idea of love. Why can't we all just love each other, they say. But we see in Colossians that without, the, the, without faith in Christ, there is no love. Without the hope of Christ, faith has no foundation. And without gospel ministry, one cannot hear and understand the hope of Christ. So I've asked you to think of your Epaphras, and, and if you are an Epaphras to someone else, and that implies Do you faithfully minister with the gospel in all times? Do you faithfully preach and proclaim and declare and live the hope of Christ in all times, at all times, in all places? Or do you, like Paul has warned us not to do, do you shift from the hope of Christ when things get bad enough? Is there a point for you where the gospel is not enough? That we can pray, we can preach, But at some point, we're going to do something different. When things get bad enough, when stuff hits the fan, we've got to try something new. Is there a point where the gospel is no longer enough for you? Is there a social issue or a social need that's too pressing to be addressed with the gospel? An injustice too great to be forgiven and reconciled by the grace of God in truth? Or a wound too deep to be healed by the stripes of Jesus Christ? Epaphras knew of none. Paul knew of none. I know of none, and I pray that we all would know of no other hope, no other substitute, no other supplement. See, the hope of Christ is the only foundation. And that hope is firm and fruitful beyond measure. It cannot be substituted or supplemented. I think it's Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some trust in guns and some in laws. Some in bank accounts and some in jobs. Some trust in family and some in friends. Some trust in social justice and some in reparations. But we will, I pray, trust in the name of the Lord, our God. The hope of Christ does not replace 
true justice or neglect peace. It's not a forestalling or a kicking of the can down the road. It establishes justice and it establishes peace. And it leaves room also for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in darkened human hearts. The hope of Christ is the firm, fruitful foundation of our faith. And it is also the foundation on which every Christian may live a life that is fully pleasing to God. Starting in verse 9 of Colossians 1. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So this is the second part of Paul's opening prayer to the Colossians. And he moves from thanking God for the Colossians to interceding on behalf of the Colossians. Paul's prayer is that they will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And what essentially this prayer is, is that their minds would be renewed in the hope of Christ. That their minds would be drawn to the things above where Christ is seated. This heavenly focus on the seat of Christ is in order that they would live a fully pleasing life. It's so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. We must have the hope of Christ in order to live a life that is fully pleasing to God. And Paul Paul doesn't leave us guessing here. But he lists four components of a life that is fully pleasing to God. The first one in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. We've already talked about this a little bit, but that is essentially love. Love for God and love for neighbor. It's obedience to the commands of Christ. Submission to the word of Christ. Bearing fruit in every good work is the practical outworking of the gospel. It's what changes in our lives. And you notice here in the text... And in real life, it must and it does come after the gospel. It has to come after the gospel. See, we can try to bear fruit in every good work, but if we don't have the seed, there's no growth. You can modify society's behavior for a time, but if the root of the matter is not in them, it will wither away. It's gospel labor that produces gospel living. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5:16 to let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so it involves, as we saw in Colossians 3, this casting off of our sin, right? Because the, the yoke of sin around our necks has been broken and cast off. We have the freedom of Christ and in Christ to actually obey the commands of Christ. That there's no time in a believer's life where he actually has to sin. And I'm not saying that Christians will be perfect. They won't. We won't be until we're presented to Christ. But the power of sin is broken by the hope of Christ. And instead, we put on, as Colossians 3 says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And it's laboring with each other to bring the gospel to all those around us. So God is fully pleased when we do justice, 
when we love kindness, when we walk humbly before our God, as Micah exhorts us to. But this fully pleasing, living sacrifice to God can only come about when we are filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. At the end of Colossians 2, it tells us that all wisdom and all understanding, all the treasures of God's knowledge are in Christ and Christ alone. The gospel message of the hope of Christ must take root in us before it bears fruit through us in every good work. And the same can be said of every society and every culture. Because every society and culture is comprised of individual hearts in need of Christ. It has to be addressed at that level, at the level of the heart, before it can be addressed in any other scale. Secondly, we see here a life fully pleasing to God. It is increasing in the knowledge of God. So, as a Reformed Baptist church, we may look at this and think we have this down, right? Um, I've got Hodges' systematic theology in my shopping cart. It's coming to me soon. I've got Calvin's Institutes on my shelf, right? I know the attributes of God as listed by Steve Lawson. And so we tend to, to boil this down, increasing in the knowledge of God, to uh, giving assent to this sort of um, theological fact sheet about God. But that's not, what, that's not what this word entails here, this epignosis. It's, it's this knowledge, but it also implies this personal acquaintance with the truth, that you're used to the truth, that you're well-versed in it. And not only that, that you know it, but you've seen it. You've experienced it in Christ. It's maturity in the faith is what this is. The increasing in the knowledge of God. And I don't think it's too out of keeping with this text to say, in paraphrase, that what pleases God here is growing in knowing God. And that only comes through communion with God. Through obedience in God and serving Him and His power but also time spent deep in prayer with Him, deep in the Word of God, which He has ordained as the means by which we would know Him on this earth. And I would also say, in a time where we see the hope of Christ most needed, there's also a time where growing in the knowing of God, growing in maturity of the faith is most needed. And I think it's, it's, no, it's no coincidence that just as we see heavy opposition to the thing that is most needed in our culture, the hope of Christ, we also see heavy opposition internally to what we need most, and that's maturity in the faith. Think about how many streaming services, video streaming services we have out there in the world right now. I can't even keep track of them. I mean, there's so much content out there that you literally do not have enough time in the day to watch it all. We, we think about all of the time spent on social media, all of the time spent um, on our hobbies, whether that's video games, for me it's usually coffee or something like that. And those things aren't inherently bad in and of themselves. But I will say that in one sense, entertainment is the enemy of the knowledge of God. I mean, there's really no greater point in history where we need every Christian on their knees before God in hours of intercessory prayer, in deep and abiding time in His Word. And yet there's never been a time where more entertainment is available to us at the touch of a button. And what do we go to with the majority of our time? Because I think the tragedy here is that we spend, and this is, if you're anything like me, this is exactly what you're doing. We spend hours a day just gorging ourselves on this spiritual junk food. 
And we spend relative minutes a day in the Word of God, and even less in prayer. And that's a, that's a tragedy. And it doesn't make entertainment immoral, but it's not fruitful. It's not fruitful like the Word of Christ is. We see um, Christ's letter to the churches in Revelation. And he says that he's standing at the door and knocking, and that's often used as an evangelical verse, and it shouldn't be, because it's written to believers. That if they would open the door, he'd come in and he'd spend time with them, he'd eat with them. I think of in the Song of Solomon where the groom is at the latch, and he's trying to open the door, and the bride doesn't get up in time, and she comes and she opens the door and he's gone. How many times do we see Christ passing by while we're in the fishing boat? And we don't call out to him. That if we just open the door, that if we just ask Him to spend time with us, He would. But we ignore Him for lesser things. And it is a tragedy mostly because of this, that what comfort and peace and maturity, what glories of Christ we miss out on while our Bibles are collecting dust on our nightstand or on our desk and our screens are growing warm from their usage. We see here also in, in the third component of a life that's fully pleasing to God, that it's being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. All endurance and patience with joy. Endurance with joy. Patience with joy. That is so profoundly different from what we see the world's reaction to hardship and injustice today. Right? There's really just this perpetual outrage machine that is social media. So anything that happens, you're rated on your righteousness by how fast you can comment on it. By how quickly you can demonstrate outrage and impatience. By how much you can malign people that, don't, that signal the same virtues that you do. But the Christian understands that everything that happens in this life, good or bad, even sin... It is allowed, or it comes, not, not in the case of sin, but it comes from the hand of a loving Father who uses all things, all things, for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We see that in, bear out in Romans 5 when he talks about that our, our sufferings, they, they are really so that we would have more hope, that they would work in us more hope, that we would endure through them and after witnessing the Holy Spirit's faithfulness in us helping us to persevere we would be that more sure that he would bring us to the end we're told to count all of our trials as joy in James for the testing of it produces character character produces endurance endurance produces hope and hope will not put us to shame it is for our good that hardship comes in the life of a Christian and when we are outraged when we feel slighted, when we complain about the unfairness of it all, there is one sense in which we assault the providence of God in our lives. May we not be like the Israelites in the wilderness, complaining against God because they don't have meat and the whole time He's providing them with manna to sustain them in His way. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing in trials and in hardships and sin. It's okay to not approve of sin. We're not supposed to. We are supposed to express deep sorrow and lament 
at the brokenness of this world. But even the brokenness of this world is ultimately for our good and God's glory. And we must see God's smiling providence behind, or smiling face behind his frowning providence, as William Cooper says in his hymn. God allows and ordains terrible trials in this life so he can bolster our faith. And as 2 Corinthians puts it in chapter 4, all of our sufferings are working for us in eternal weight of glory. God is always for us. And it's in that spirit that we are also in the fourth component of a fully pleasing life that we're giving thanks to the Father, the one who has qualified us. That God's faithfulness in our suffering frees us and causes us to give thanks to God in all things and even in some sense for all things. I'm reminded of Corey Ten Boom in her book, The Hiding Place, her and her sister Betsy. They're in a Nazi POW camp in Germany in the middle of winter, scantily clad. People are dying all around them. They witness unspeakable atrocities. And on top of that, they're crammed in these dorms with all of these women And there's just this huge infestation of fleas. Like, it's unbearable. People are getting sick. They can't sleep. And and somehow, in that context, they're able to get a a hold of a Bible. And they begin holding worship services, Bible studies with these other women. And these women are coming to Christ hours before they leave this world. And God is doing a great work in them for His kingdom. And the only thing that's really holding this back is the fleas. And Corey hears her sister Betsy one morning praying and she thanks God for the fleas. And Corey's so offended by this. She can't understand it. But when she's looking back and she's reflecting on it, at no point during all their Bible studies, they began to sing hymns. At no point did a Nazi guard come in and, and cause them to stop or beat them like, like they would if they were singing out, on, out in their work duties. And they learn later when this woman comes in who can translate German for them from the guards outside that they won't touch the women in there while they sing and pray to God because of the fleas. That everything God ordains in the life of a Christian is in some sense good for them and will bring Him glory. And it frees them to give thanks to the Father. Why are we confident of that? That everything is for our good from God? Because it says here, at the second half of, or in, in verse 12, it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We know God is for us because He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Paul puts it in a, in a kind of greater to lesser argument in Romans. If he who did not spare his only son for us, if he did not spare his only son for us in salvation, how much more will he not graciously give us all things? All things that we need. We see also in Romans 5 that if Christ died for us to reconcile us to himself while we were sinners, while we had no love and affection for God, if He did that for us, if He shed His precious blood for us while we were sinners, how much more will He not work in us graciously to bring us safely home now that we're justified in His sight? God is for us. So we see here that the hope of Christ frees us to live 
gospel-centered, faithful, open-handed lives. Joyful, thankful lives. That we're free to help those in need, even at the expense of our own security here on earth, because we have eternal security. That we're free to put the needs of others before our own, because Christ has served us so wonderfully. The hope of Christ in us is the firm, fruitful foundation for a fully pleasing life to God. And the hope of Christ in the world is the foundation of real, lasting change. And it's that hope, that message, that glorious gospel that must be the theme of everything that we do. We pray because God is sovereign. It's not wishful thinking. We preach because the gospel works. Because the hope of Christ is the only hope. And we live out that gospel because it has taken root in us. There's no point in which the gospel loses its power, in which the word of Christ loses its glory. If you'd bow with me. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the gift of your word. God, the hope of Christ that we have. God, that we know that you will work in us all things that are needful for us. Because by the precious blood of your Son, you have brought us to yourself. You have redeemed for yourself a people. God, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. A goodness and a faithfulness. A righteousness and a holiness that doesn't fluctuate depending upon the actions of men. God, but that you are unchangeable and unchanged. And that you bring true change to this world. We thank you, God, for who you are what you've done in us and through us and what you have promised to do. Thank you most of all for the gift of Christ. It's in his precious and holy name that I pray. Amen.